Wings for the game. Boom. Cash back. New lucky jersey. Boom. Cash back. Even a last-minute ice run can score you some cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, we said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who's taking the W, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees? Period. I'm telling you, this one is a game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Well, Harm, there is so much angst in Canuck land. This team is essentially 0-5 in the preseason, and the big debate is whether or not preseason even matters. Before we get there, my personal angst, I almost didn't make this show with the travel hell I went through in the last three days getting to and from Tampa Bay. Now, see, you're starting to just get your travel world amped up a little bit, so have you been through really, really bad travel yet? No, not really. I've actually been really fortunate. haven't had any bad delays or canceled flights. I almost missed one of my flights by about like 10 minutes before boarding closed, but that was all on me. Other than that, nothing. Yeah, you know, I don't think I've missed a flight. I think there was one flight my cameraman Owen Corbeld and I missed in San Jose and it was probably about 15 years ago. And and generally, I'm not a travel complainer because I've had really good luck traveling and you know, when you look at how much travel there is in the world, right? Like you, th- there's going to be hiccups along the way. But this weekend, oh my God, I left. I took the red eye from Vancouver to Toronto to go to Tampa. Um, my flight was two hours late leaving Vancouver. When I landed, my when I got off the plane, my Toronto to Tampa connector was, the doors were closing and it was leaving. There was no way I was getting through customs and doing all of that. So, okay. So I had two choices. Because I, I, now it's game day. It was Sunday. I needed to get to Tampa in time to do all of our TSN stuff for that game to the stadium, or I got to turn around and come back to Vancouver. So I got uh, I got off my Air Canada, got onto a WestJet flight, was able to make it to Tampa, no problem. Coming back, got from Tampa to Denver, and now I'm stuck in Denver for six hours because of a baggage delay. We left the gate twice, went back to the gate twice, then went back a third time, and it was because they had a balance issue. The The pilot was so apologetic, was so polite. I felt bad for him almost. But then, listening to how United was making them deal with it, there were 30 bags. There were 30 bags too heavy. Okay, so look, this happens before where a bag doesn't make a flight. It's happened to me. This time I was on carry-on. They, they went back. We were told they were just taking 30 bags off. It was going to affect 17 people because some people had multiple bags. But then we're waiting because they're trying to figure out whose bags belong to what. Then we're waiting because they're trying to figure out another solution to get the bags back on the plane. Oh, my God. We waited six hours. Six hours. We got off the plane. Or we we were we had the option to get off the plane three times. The third time they made us get off the plane because they had to get new staff in. Because now their day was too long. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, what was supposed to be an 11.15 Denver time departure turned into like a 5.30 Denver type time departure. It was, and, and it's, 
it was more the fact that why it was happening that was crazy. Like, take the 30 bags off the plane, move it along. Those 17 people will figure it out when they get there, like I've done before, and don't delay the entire plane further for this. And, the, like, the last four hours of the delay were just simply for that silliness. That's so. A- that's a nightmare, yeah. but see, this is what happens when you cover football, Farhan. I guarantee this only happens to football reporters. They they knew you were in October not covering the Canucks, and United decided to personally screw you over. That could be it. That could be it. Except my, my guess is United's probably making more off football travel in the United States than they are off hockey travel. Uh, in fact, United is the charter provider for the Tampa Bay Bucks. I found, or sorry, for, uh, for Kansas City. I found that out in the morning when I checked in. The lady was saying, Hey, look, we can't help you if you're a Kansas City fan, jokingly. And she said, Oh, actually, I'm kidding because we actually provide the Chiefs with their charters. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking you, you might be flawed in your theory, but, uh, it, it, it was, you know, it clearly had to be a personal attack. I actually went after United on Twitter and they responded. And normally I'd be pretty measured with that stuff. And I responded back saying, you people should be embarrassed with the way you've handled this. But um, anyway, and then Matt Baker from the BC line said, you're doing it all wrong. He said, you know, when, when media people get delayed, you got to say, open up my mentions or, or sorry, open up uh, for questions. And so then I did that and it was good to interact with fans and everything. So it was, uh, yeah, the world didn't end, um, but I haven't had a lot of sleep. And then, oh, and then the, the final, the coup de gras. You know, I'm in an exit row. I did, didn't get business class on that flight, but, you know, I'm in a reclining exit row because the first one didn't recline. So I'm in one. I'm ready to sleep. And now there's a screaming baby for the entire flight, like three rows in oh front of me. Oh, my goodness. So that but was. Hold just on. A- you normally fly business class? No, no. I just, like, on my way in, I, I had enough upgrade credits. I was able to upgrade because ah, I was okay, on the okay. Air Canada flight, right? And then coming back, you try to get on the exit row or maybe premium. I don't have, an, you know, I, TSN's not going to put me on business. Are you kidding? Um, I thought that's what you were insinuating. I was like, look at Farhan, big baller. No, no. I, I, I flew business on the way down, but only because I, I had enough upgrade credits because of the amount I travel. And then coming back, uh, I was able to get into the exit row and... and yeah, just the, the crying. I'm like, oh, here we go. So, yeah. Um, but hey, look, I, I'm, I'm sorry for everybody who uh, wanted to be regaled by that. this in the first five minutes of the VanCast instead of talking about an 0-5 preseason. Yeah, I know there's been some OTLs along the way, but it doesn't matter. Uh, yesterday, last night, was probably the best performance of the lot relative to expectation. And I say that because they um, they – in terms of an NHL lineup, in terms of what the actual lineup is going to look like on opening night, the Oilers with McDavid and Dreisaitl and Kane and all their big guns, and the Canucks without Elias Pettersson, Bo Horvat, uh, JT Miller, uh, Quinn Hughes, Thatcher Demko, actually were pretty game for 57 minutes. And then in the last three minutes, it completely fell apart and they gave up three goals. But um, that was probably the least disappointing performance compared to the others. But what do you make of the fact, you know, we'll talk about a few, you know, nuts and bolts as far as specific players are concerned. Christian Wallanen was the one Canuck that really stood out last night. And we'll get into that a little bit. But just the totality of it with two preseason games to go. We're recording on a Tuesday. They play Edmonton in Edmond, or sorry, in Abbotsford on Wednesday. Uh, before wrapping up the preseason on Friday. What do you make of their record and what that tells us about this team going into the regular season? Well, this is the anti-Arizona Coyotes. You go winless in preseason and then 82-0 and in the regular season on the way to the Stanley Cup. It's just math. But no, in all <laughs> seriousness, it was interesting because I, I looked at this 
tough preseason start. And my initial inclination has always been preseason results don't matter at all. But then I thought about if you're awful in preseason at the extreme level, is there any correlation with a poor start to the regular season? So I kind of decided to go back. And what's interesting is the Canucks were also the worst uh, preseason team in the league last year. They were one and four. And obviously, they got off to that poor start. And what's even more interesting is the second worst team by points percentage in the preseason last year were the Colorado Avalanche. They went two and four. And what's interesting about the Avs is they actually started the season two, four and oh. So even by their lofty standards, they were off to a poor start. And then before that, the last preseason we'd had was in 2019 20. The Sharks were the only team that struggled. And of, and of course, there were a tire fire right out of the gate in a year where this was before they had completely fallen off. Like they had just acquired Eric Carlson. They had the unprotected lottery pick. People still thought they were going to be good. So I looked at those three scenarios and wondered, okay, is there something there? But then you go back further. And overall, I think you've got like 10 teams since 2017 who've played a minimum of five games and have been below 400 point percentage. And there's there's really nothing there in terms of uh, a bigger correlation. The group as a whole was exactly average. There's no trend. Some teams started well, some poorly, some middling. So right off the bat, the results, them going 0-5, I don't care personally about that. Just kind of what happens in preseason, especially when it comes to, for example, the clubs. And I know it wasn't as relevant last night, but Overall, the team hasn't scored a lot, and some people have wondered about that. I'm not too concerned about that, especially because some of their veterans, and of course, Miller and Horvat didn't play last night, but Miller and Horvat, Horvat, for example, have been sleepwalking through preseason, and they're exactly the kind of vets that can turn it on in a heartbeat. And you look at, for example, even Connor Garland in last year's preseason, he showed nothing in preseason and ended up out of the gate with eight points in his first six games when the games actually counted. So offensively, I'm not too worried. There are certain habits though, right? So the results may not matter, but habits and systems kind of do. And that's where in some of the games, when you look at, for example, Seattle on Saturday, you don't like to see them giving up as much defensively as they did. I think they've been disorganized in their own end. They've obviously had some struggles moving the puck. So those are the sorts of, I think, specific issues that you look at and go, well, that's been a problem for a while. It's a reoccurring theme and it is a legitimate concern that we already had going into the season. So that's something that you don't like to see. So, I mean, I'm not worried about this preseason start per se, but I'm also looking at some of these specifics in terms of the club's defensive structure and blue line performance. And it reinforces that it is that those elements are a concern going into the season. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think it's, you know, it, I'm such a process based guy, right. With those kinds of things. And um, I, I think it's a fair concern, not that they've struggled, but why they've struggled, right. Yes. And what it's looked like. And when you look at, where they needed to improve specifically. And I think that has shown us, you know, why Bruce Boudreaux is as frustrated as he is. I think it bothers him more because of what's happening from a process standpoint, right? I mean, we we know how 
the structure has been poor, right? Like that's been the conversation the entire off season. That's what management and, um, you know, the president in, in Jim Rutherford, they've wanted to see more of that. They told him, you got to improve your defensive structure. We've got to figure out zone exits. We've got to be able to transition the puck. And those are the exact things that are the problem right now. If they were, if they were losing games, um, you know, whatever, if they were losing games 5-4 and it was, you know, bad goaltending, it might be a different conversation because, you know, Thatcher Demko could be one of those vets that have turned it on or it could be the young guys that are struggling in net. And you know what I mean? But because they have been permissively challenged in their own end, I think that's what's caused the angst internally because Bruce Boudreau is clearly frustrated. He hasn't blown it off, right? He has said, look, yeah, this is a problem, um, you know, and, and it leads some people to Turn it back to, well, are they not listening to him in this area because he's a lame duck coach? And, and I don't think no. so. Like, I, I think, I think a coach has got to be in it for much longer before players start tuning him out and he's no. not even a full season in. So I don't think and that's like got him. anything to do with it. Yeah. And so I don't think that's got anything to do with the situation, but, um, it probably tells you, Hey, management. You guys messed up by not figuring out this defensive situation in the offseason, and it's, it can't just go away based on internal improvement, right? It, it can't just happen, and it has been some of their better blue liners. You know, when Tyler Myers has been in, when Tucker Pullman, who I won't say is one of their better, but certainly from a payment standpoint, you expect him to be in your top six on opening night, if not your top four. Um, you know, they've been challenged from, from time to time in this preseason, so... Uh, I do think there is reason for concern because of the fact that this hasn't improved. You brought in two assistant coaches that were supposed to really, really help you in this specific area, and it doesn't look different than it did a year ago. And they haven't earned the benefit of the doubt based off how they've started the regular season the last two years, right? They haven't proven to us that they are, they may be a team that can just turn it on, but they haven't proven it yet. And so that's why. Nobody in the market's panicking. Nobody's saying they're worried, but it is something that makes you, it raises your eyebrow a little bit. And especially in light of the team already suffering a few key injuries with Besser and Mikheyev weakening the strength of what should have been a formidable top nine. And even on the back end, losing a piece like Travis Dermott, when you have a thin blue line, it immediately restricts some of your options, right? Because now all of a sudden, can you even afford to play Quinn Hughes on the right side? And it just exposes some of the concerns that uh, we had in terms of the blue line construction. So for me, it's even more just the injuries off the bat. And I know we've already kind of talked about that in the past. I don't want to keep going on about that for too much, too much longer. But uh, when you mix in the injuries and some of the process things we've seen, it is, again, it's nothing to panic or worry about, but it's definitely not an ideal start. Let's talk a bit about some of the individual performances, and we'll just go to last night because Christian Wallanen was the one player that really, really stood out. And, um, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about Danny DeKaiser, and they brought him in on a PTO, and could he be that guy that can, that you know, that all of a sudden could provide some depth? And none of, a, none of us have been impressed with what we've seen to this point, you know, to the point where... You know, I've said, yes, yeah, sign him, but immediately you're sending him to the minors and you're not signing him for anything above the minimum and you send him to Abbotsford and he's purely a depth piece. And if that's the best he can get and that's what he wants, then, you know, I don't know that there's a downside to putting him in Abbotsford, uh, if, especially if the entire contract can be buried there. But Christian Wolanin may have made a case last night. I mean, he, he's been solid throughout the preseason and maybe this is relative to who was in the lineup last night, but this was a player that for the most part, 
can like he exited the puck with a level of poise. He didn't handle it panicked in his own end. Uh, I thought he looked pretty good. I mean, you know, he could have cleared, you know, he, he missed a clearing attempt on a penalty kill situation, which ultimately led to a goal uh, that uh, that I think made it, uh, either, I think it was the 3-1 goal. But um, beyond that, I didn't see a lot of mistakes from him. I mean, I think his stick broke on one play uh, that wound up in the back of the net as well, but that's kind of more bad luck than anything else. But overall, when the puck was on his stick, there was a level of comfort there. Is there a path to the opening night lineup for, or even the opening night roster, even if he's a scratch for Christian Wolanin? Yeah. I mean, initially I thought he was on the outside looking in, not because, I mean, right from the the opening of training camp in Whistler actually impressed me, but it, it was interesting, for example, when the team opened with their main practice group that he wasn't a part of it. And that's usually a telling sign in terms of whether a team views a player as a legitimate contender for a roster spot. Now, I think the performance that he had last night is strong enough, especially in light of Travis Dermott's injury, for him to I, I, work himself into the, into the conversation. And like you mentioned, I really like the passing ability. And, and, and he has a clear NHL-level IQ in terms of his decision-making at both, both ends of the ice. I watched him pretty closely in that first preseason game where they sent a mostly AHL-heavy squad to Calgary. And it was a similar sort of thing where it was an underwhelming blue line, and he was the clear leader. He was a composing sort of presence. And you can just tell that he has a lot of pro experience based off how in control and how composed he seems at all times. There's just nothing that really seems to panic him. Of course, there's no, nothing in particular that, you know, he's not, a, he's not a standout skater or he's not elite defensively, but he's kind of a jack of all trades. And I've, I've seen enough to where I want him to get more of a look through the remainder of these games and see, is he someone who can help the NHL roster considering Dermot's injury? Now, before the hype train gets out of control, it's worth mentioning Wolanin couldn't crack Ottawa's top six on the blue line for all those years in the past. Mm -hmm. And we knew when we know how bad the Senators blue line was during those rebuilding years. So when we look at the bigger sample of Wolanin's career, I don't think he's you're not you're not betting on him being anything more than a six seven. But sure. even if it could be that, there's value in that, especially if Let's say there's a scenario where Jack Rathbone starts off the season similar to the way he did last year, where he had a strong camp, but when you put him into NHL games, he looked a little bit overwhelmed at times. When, for example, the uh, the Minnesota Wild came and the Canucks had their home opener, the Wild had this fast, heavy team up front, and they were applying a lot of forechecking pressure on Rathbone. And Rathbone, because he especially because of the pandemic, because he hasn't played a lot of pro games, you could tell that it was a learning curve moment for him, that he wasn't maybe ready for that type of difficult spot. To have a veteran like Will Annan that can slot into that potential third-pair role uh, in the absence, again, of Dermot as well, that that's valuable to have as a secondary option. So I'd like to see the club give him more of a look through the rest of preseason because he was far and away the team's best defender last night. Yeah, no doubt. 70 NHL games for Wolanin, uh, 20 points, a minus seven over his career, nine games played last season, eight in, uh, in LA uh, and one with Buffalo. So he has had a fair bit of time. Left shot, I mean, I, I think if he was a right shot, I think the argument would be a little bit different. Uh, 6'2", 190, so 
You know, he does offer a little bit of size, but to me, right away, as I look at the bottom of the opening night, and again, not opening night roster from a 20, but just overall, um, like, I, I saw in one game a lot more from him than I've seen from Danny DeKaiser at any point in this preseason. Boy, I was more impressed with what I saw here than I've seen from DeKaiser at any point. Oh, he's looked, Willanis looked way better. And again, not just la- la- last night. But even from the first day in Whistler, Trancer and I were watching Willanen kind of move and make passes and make plays with poise. And we were immediately like, yeah, he looks a lot better than DeKaiser. And I don't mean to rail on DeKaiser, but I just, I don't see a scenario where he helps this NHL team far on. I, I don't see it in the mobility. I don't see it in the way that he handles the puck. And for a team that already has issues on the back end with exits and being able to play with poise and mobility and skill, I think that only exacerbates the issue. So 100%, as far as I'm concerned, we'll land in over DeKaiser. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we do want to get into the latest on Bo Horvat, what we're hearing as far as comparables are concerned, and um, where this team is at on a number of injury fronts when the VanCast returns. Wings for the game. Boom, cash back. New lucky jersey. Boom, cash back. Even a last-minute ice run can score you some cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, we said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who's taking the W, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees? Period. I'm telling you, this one is a game-changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. So, Harm, let's talk a little bit about Bo Horvat and where we're at on that contract situation. Nothing to suggest any progress has been made, but Elliot Friedman suggested a pretty interesting comparable, which is a pretty big number when you're looking at what a deal for Bo could look like, and that's Sean Couturier. Now, Couturier's a Former Selkie Trophy Award winner. I mean, and, and uh, certainly Horvat's coming off a 30-goal season. We believe he's got the ability to be in that conversation at some point down the road. But now we're talking about like $7.5, $7.7 million per season for a player like Bo Horvat. Uh, how real is that? To be totally honest, I, I don't think Couturier is a fair comparable for Horvat at all. Now, I know why the comparison was drawn because that surface – surface level I don't see a lot of similarities but the career points per game Kachuri and Horvat are at an identical 0.64 so that's where you draw the similarity but beyond that there's nothing there and career points per game is not is not what you base your contract uh comparables off of in my opinion because so much has uh so much has changed for these players since they entered the league Kachuri as you mentioned he has a Selkie trophy trophy to his name He's an elite defensive center. Horvat, meanwhile, can play tough matchups, but he's slightly below average defensively. Defensively, There's a reason he's never been a regular penalty killer. And then even offensively, Kachuria has two 76-point seasons under his belt. And the year before he signed that massive extension, he had 41 points in 45 games, which was, again, a 75-point pace. Horvat's career high is 61 points, and he's only hit 60 points once in his career. So you step back and look at it. Kachuria is miles better defensively and he's significantly better offensively as well. Kachuria is a legit first line center. He's essentially a prime Ryan O'Reilly clone. Whereas Horvat's 
Horvat's just a good second line center. That's that's all he is. And and for this club right now, he's actually their third line center. So even when you step back and look at forget Couturier, Nazem Kadri is probably a little bit better than Bo Horvat. Kadri had that eighty-seven point season. He played at a hundred point pace last season. He won a Stanley Cup and he signed just seven times seven. Right now, Kadri's a little bit older, so that matters when you're talking about a long-term deal and uh, and a player's value. But Horvat's not much more valuable than that, in my opinion. Now, I think Pat Morris is a, uh, is a very smart agent. I'm sure when you're presenting comparables, both sides are going to pick whatever comparable is most favorable and really try and push that. I'm sure that from Horvat's camp, they're... They're they're trying to push Couturier as 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 their most favorable comp, but it just doesn't work, and I'm sure that they know that. And this is where, in any negotiation, when you when you start and you pitch initial numbers, if you're if you're the player, you're going to pitch a really high number. You're going to pitch you're going to pitch a really high comparable, and if you're the team, you're going to pitch a, a really low number, a really low comparable, right? And now. If we're talking about the Canucks' standpoint, if I'm the Canucks and Horvat's camp is, is pointing to Couturier, I'm turning back and saying, well, how much better is Bo Horvat than Vincent Trocek? Trocek, with the Canes over the last couple seasons, he's had 94 points in 128 games, which is a 60-point pace. He even has a 75-point season under his belt. It was a few years ago, but that's a height that Horvat hasn't reached. Now, Trocek earned a deal that was, I think, 5.675 times seven years. So he came in below $6 million. Now, Horvat overall is a better player than Trocek. He's more of a goal scorer, and goal scorers are valued at premium. He's a captain, and I do think teams would pay more for Horvat than Trocek. But that's the comp I'm trying to push if I'm the Canucks. Yeah, but what do you? What, what's the captaincy worth? What's who he is as a person worth contractually? It, it it does play a it does play a role in terms of in terms of the value in, in organizationally in, in selling a player. For example, when you look at let's say when Pedersen's bridge deal was being done, there was a bit of a premium on him compared to let's say Matt Barzell in terms of Pedersen's importance to the franchise at, at that time on a rebuilding Canucks team was higher than like when we were talking about the Barzell versus Pedersen comp, there was a premium there based off of Pedersen being this franchise guy and, and how he sells tickets. So when it comes to the captaincy, there is a bit of a premium that you'd place on Horvat and what he means to the locker room and uh, as a free face of the franchise compared to Vincent Trocek, right? Trocek is a great player, but nobody looks at him. He's not a, He's not going to be a core piece in in the Rangers the same way that when you bring up core players on Vancouver, you bring up Bo Horvat, especially given how long he's been with this franchise. So it's a slight premium. I don't think it's a lot. I think the bigger factor is when you look at Vancouver's internal cap structure, it's not in a great spot because when you look at Besser, because of the inflated QO that he had heading into last offseason, he ended up signing for $6.65 million as a cap hit, despite coming off a considerably worse year than Horvat. And he's a winger, right? So if I'm the, the bigger concern in terms of trying to bring Horvat's number down is if I'm Horvat's agent, I'm pointing to Besser and saying Horvat is more valuable to this team than Besser. 
as a center. He's coming off the better year. And if Besser's making 6.65, there's no way he's taking anything less than that. Now, Horvat and Besser aren't traditional comps for each other, but internal cap dynamics do matter, right? That's why, for example, in, in St. Louis, Thomas and Kairou signed matching extensions, despite them being different positionally and being different players. So I think the Besser's deal kind of, and having that as an internal comp raises the floor of, uh, of Horvat's value. And that's why I think it, it's obviously, I haven't done a full deep dive on all the comps and spoken to agents and, and done my usual thing. But if you were to ask me independently, I think Horvat's market value should be in the 6.5 to $7 million range. And, and I'd say this, anything higher than a, a flat seven on a long-term deal does scare me for Bora Horvat. Yeah, I would agree. I, to me, I think that's that's the magic number because, you know, if you want to look at internal cap dynamics, you've got Elias Pettersson at 7.35 and he should come in yep. under that, right? I mean, so if, if that's, and I looked at the Besser deal as well because I think Bo Horvat is significantly more important to this team than Brock Besser. Um, but at the same time, from a big picture standpoint, he's not more important than Elias Pettersson, right? So, yes. um, so if, if that puts him at seven, because that's the exact number right in the middle, then that might not be inappropriate. But now all of a sudden, if you're making him, uh, higher on the, on the priority list than Elias Pettersson, you know, I think you're in trouble. And I know that Pettersson's number is going to be significantly higher if he does what we think he's going to do this year, uh, or over the next two years, I should say, when he gets back into the contract discussion, you know, he's going to be in the nine, He's going to be in the nine million range, so it's not like he'll stay Maybe even higher. above Horvat. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you're right. If he hits the home run, he'll be above ten. Um, so when you look at that, you know that it's not going to last that long. But if you just look at it from an internal standpoint today, he should probably be somewhere between those two players. And you know, and we or, go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to say, and you have to be disciplined with how you manage this Horvat number because you've already got Miller now at eight, and if Pedersen has a big year over the next couple of seasons, especially with the cap going up in two years, as it's now projected to be, Pedersen's number could be really big. And how much can you afford to pay three centers? If you've got, let's say, Miller at eight, Pedersen maybe touches, uh, maybe touches 10. How many top centers can you pay when these guys aren't Austin Matthews, Connor McDavid, or Leon Dreisaitl? No, they're not. No. And it's going to be, uh, you know, uh, not to uh, not to kick on the grave, but this is going to be another one where we look back at Benning's inability to get this deal done with Pedersen a year ago and think of the long-term effects it's going to have on the next management team. The fact that they had to settle, the fact that they had to settle for a three-year deal when they probably could have got him done, you know, closer to eight and gotten it, gotten it, uh, you know, for the six-year term that they needed. uh, I think they... I think they made a mistake. Well, I mean, we, we know they made a mistake and they're going to they're going to be left paying for it unless unless Pedersen really bottoms out. There was a path to them getting to the right number a year ago and they didn't get it done. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, you know, we talked at, at length in the last show, just kind of about the negative vibes around the team. Sorry, not in the last show, but on the on the uh, live room with uh, with Drancher later in the week. And. Rachel Dory was part of that conversation. You know, we we've. We've certainly uh, heard a lot about the Francesco Aquilini situation. There's a lot of opinion around that, about what he should be doing, uh, given the just awful allegations that have been made by the family uh, about him, you know, in the midst of, of uh, the divorce and everything else with, with he and his ex-wife. Um, certainly, uh, you know, there's an opinion to be had if any of that is proven to be true, because you just can't be associated with that on any level. But again, that's got to go through a process. 
between now and then. And, and there's a lot of negativity around that. You know, you've got injured players. You've got so many other just negative vibes around this team before we even get to the preseason record. And Rachel Dory's name was discussed in that. You know, we've talked about how uh, Bruce Boudreaux was a real big fan. I remember talking to him about her at the golf tournament and how we kind of discovered then that she's gone from analyst to on the coaching side and on the video side a little bit. And all of a sudden she's gone and certainly lots of speculation about what led to that. What's the latest you've heard in the story? Yeah, I tried to just collect as much information as, as possible and, and kind of add up everything that we know at this point. As you mentioned right off the bat, Bruce speaking glowingly about her at the Jake Milford. And the key is he brought her up unprompted in terms of how excited he is that in, t- in terms of how excited he is that she's working, uh, she was going to be working with the coaching staff. It would have been one thing if he was asked about her specifically, but no, Bruce brought her up on his own accord. And obviously, a couple of weeks before the season starts, anytime a member of a coaching staff is let go, that's pretty odd. Now, based off of Rick Dollywell and, and Satya Shaw's reporting, we know that it has nothing to do with Francesco Aquilini, nothing to do with social media or past podcast appearances. Beyond that, it was interesting to see Karen Dory, her mother, had a cryptic tweet saying the truth will be told. Now, I tried to dig into that a little bit. Rachel did not respond to a request for comment. Yesterday, though, I ended up emailing Karen Dory, again, her mother, and the response I got was, quote, thank you for your email. Unfortunately, I cannot comment at this time as this is a legal matter. So according to, to her mother, this has turned into a legal matter. I don't know anything beyond that, but that's very interesting. And, and if that's the case, I wonder, will we continue to hear about this story or will things be handled quietly? And we never hear about it again. Hear about it again. I, I don't know. And, and the reason I even had the idea of emailing uh, Karen was because I saw some fan on Reddit had emailed to check in and basically gotten the same response about not, about, uh, not being able to comment as it's a legal matter. So obviously, I had to verify and do the work myself before reporting something like that. But Shout out to that Canucks fan on uh, on Reddit. And look, I'm not trying to sensationalize this or create a controversy or anything. I'm not. I'm obviously not here to point fingers or say this is or this is the good guy and that's the bad guy. I've just been asked a lot of questions about it, and, and after digging, I do do find it interesting that there could be some uh, some legal implications in terms of. Uh, I mean, I don't know what what exactly, but uh, obviously the dismissal. Is, uh, is strange, and, and there's definitely a story behind the scenes there. Yeah, my understanding is there at some point is going to be a statement that will come out uh, from counsel that she has retained, uh, you know, and whether or not there's going to be a chance to get any deeper than, than what gets presented there, I, you know, I, I don't know, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there is some sort of statement at some point this week from uh, from her representation, uh, you know, and it, it might might not get into a, a ton of detail, right? It may just kind of defend her on some levels, but um, I can I can certainly see that happening. Uh, let's uh, move on to some other topics. Um, I want to get back into first of all, actually, before we leave, Rachel, do you think they replace her? Like, given the role she was expected to have, it was. I I don't know because we asked Bruce about this, and he said it's out of my hands. It's up to it's up to Patrick, which. First of all, I thought it was interesting. I thought Bruce, considering he leads the coaching staff, I thought he would have had more more say in that. But Bruce Boudreaux didn't seem to know, so I'm I'm not sure whether they are going to go out and and replace him. They may just look at an internal candidate, if anything. But I'm not sure where they stand on on replacing her on, in terms of assisting the video side and in the eye in the sky. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you know, the fact that they transitioned her into that area would indicate that Boudreaux felt a level of need, um, you know, to, to have that role in place. So, yeah, like, I think probably the simplest thing is to, to move somebody else internally. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll see if they go down that road. Um, back to the team on the ice. And uh, one player I wanted to get into um, is Nils Hoaglander who's had a lot of opportunities, played in all the preseason games, given the fact that he couldn't play in both at the same time the first weekend. Um, one goal thus far, he's been noticeable. He's been active. He's, uh, you know, he's buzzed around. He's been played up and down the lineup. We've seen him in a top six role. We've seen him in a fourth line energy role. Um, what have you made of his performance thus far? And is there anybody else that's also been given a lot of time that may bump him? Because we do believe based on injury, there will be an opening night lineup spot to be had. Yeah, and overall, I think when you look at Hoaglander's training camp in preseason, it's been mostly positive the way he came out of the gate in Whistler and Boudreaux talking about him as the best player on the ice. I don't know if that necessarily reflected in the actual scrimmages where Pedersen was a clear cut above everybody else, but nonetheless, a strong showing for Hoaglander there. The preseason games have been decent overall. I think it's been a little bit more up and down. For example, the first one... In Calgary, I didn't think it was it was a good one for Hoaglander. That was mostly an AHL heavy squad, and it was a talented Flames team. But aside from, I think there was one play where he cut in cut into the slot on the power play and had a good scoring chance. He didn't really pop outside of that, and he actually took a couple of undisciplined penalties far away from the defensive zone, which I'm sure the the coaching staff, uh, led by Jeremy Carlton running the bench in Calgary, there wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have appreciated or, or liked to see. Now, in Seattle against Thursday, I thought that was arguably one of his best performances on that energy line with uh, with Oman and, and Joshua. He didn't necessarily stand out offensively, but the way he was just able to drive that line with his energy, with his physicality, and being able to get under opponents' skin with, um, with, with how he engaged in battles and, and retrieved pucks and was active on the forecheck. And, and that line spent most of... It's a night in the offensive zone, and I think Hoaglander was the real driver of that. He had uh, he had a jump in his step, and, and it was really, really good to see the sort of two-way impact he was able to make. Now, the other the other night, last night, against uh, against Edmonton, I thought it was, despite the goal in the power play, I thought he was a lot quieter at 5-on-5, five five. and I, I do think Drancer pointed this out, it's interesting that he's still only played third line minutes despite so many forwards being out. I, I again, I would have liked to see him play a lot more and, and would have liked to see what, what he could do with a greater opportunity. And in terms of other guys that are contending for the spot, Linus Carlson has continued to earn a massive opportunity right since the right since Boudreaux sort of picked a, a main NHL group. They've kind of been, they've kind of both been given this equal expanded opportunity in the top nine. Carlson's got gotten looks with uh with the Pedersen line. He he played with them on on the Thursday game against the Kraken. He got uh looks with the Miller line. Even when you go back to the very first practice that they had, and remember the the very first time an NHL team uh, uh practices and sort of splits in terms of a main group and a clear AHL group after an initial preseason game, it reveals a lot of hints, right? For example, when you look at last year's first practice with the main group, Alex Chason was on the first power play unit, and that foreshadowed that, hey, 
this PTO invite, he's going to make the team and he's going to play me- a meaningful role. It was interesting that Hoaglander and Carlson were swapping out for each other on Patterson's line, which to me insinuated that they're both being given looks for this top nine role, especially because they were also swapping out for each other on the second unit power play. So I think Carlson's a legit contender to play middle six minutes. He obviously doesn't have the flashy offensive upside that Hoaglander does, but he's a smart detail-oriented player. And um, and so I do wonder how much of a shot he has to carve out a meaningful role so, so long as Mikheyev and Besser continue to be absent. Yeah, let's uh, let's take a quick break. I want to come back and go through some of what you've touched on here because it does filter into uh, the work that you and Drancher did a couple of days ago, just talking about uh, you know who's in, who's out, and who's on the bubble because a few of those names are definitely on the bubble. And I also want to get into the Michael Furlan situation when we return. Harm, before we dive into the uh, the roster, because by the time we do this show again, we're going to be into that time. Uh, let's talk a bit about Michael Furland and uh, interesting report that the Canucks are actively trying to move him. Now, this isn't a real surprise. You know, we've talked about it previously that it made sense for them to try to move that deal, although there doesn't seem to be as many people, as many teams in a situation to take advantage of what that deal has to offer. Uh, but they're still actively trying to move it on a number of different fronts, not the least of which is they'd like to save the cash because the deal isn't insured. And given his concussion history, that surprised me a little bit. I mean, ultimately, maybe they couldn't get it insured. I don't know. But, um, you know, that presents an interesting layer to this case. Definitely. And it may be a little bit more difficult to move because of that, because he's owed $2.75 million in real cash. and. Most big contracts nowadays are insured 80% to where if a player goes on LTIR, the team's only on hook for 20%. So there's a substantial difference there. And I'm sure that's a big incentive and a big reason why the club's trying to move it. But if you're a team that is considering using absorbing a contract like Furlins and, and leveraging the LTIR device to open up some, uh, open up some cap, cap flexibility, that uh, that is... That's a real disadvantage for them having to absorb all that real cash and, and could an acquiring team sell that to their ownership group. So that is a complicating factor. I do think it'll make it a little bit more more challenging. But from the Canucks' standpoint, if they can just find a way to to get rid of the contract and, and avoid operating in LTIR, there are so many little advantages that add up. I mean, for starters, you don't have the gymnastics of of uh, of setting your opening night roster and trying to maximize cap relief because remember when you have say Furlan's three and a half million dollar cap hit it's not as simple as just move when move him on LTIR and you get the uh, you get the full cap hit relief you've got to work gymnastics on getting as close to the ceiling as possible to um, to get a capture point to where you maximize your relief and and I don't even know right now based off LTIR if the Canucks can carry a full twenty three man roster. They might only be able to carry 22. And you look at, let's say, even a team like Edmonton, they're in a spot where they're they they're also in LTIR. They probably can only carry a 21-man 20 roster. And that obviously makes it a lot more challenging to navigate short-term injuries and illnesses. There's obviously the other big advantage of if, if the Canucks can, can get rid of this Furlan contract, they could start accruing daily cap space. And... Every day that you're not in LTIR and you have, even if it's a little bit of, of cap cushion below the ceiling, you 
you pick up that cap space daily and that pools up by the trade deadline. It could become millions. And that could mean more flexibility to add a player at the deadline. Maybe you could even be a third-party broker using your cap space to where sometimes you see deals where a team can't afford uh, a, a rental and, and they use a third party to retain 50%. And, and that team that acts as a broker picks up a third or fourth round pick. Um, and even with performance bonuses, right? The Canucks have Kuzbenko, Podkols, and Hoagland and Rathbone with potential uh, bonuses that they could earn based off their performances. If you're an LTIR, if you have Furland, those bonuses if they're attained, would roll over next season as dead cap. And you obviously want to avoid that. So the question I just have at this point is, is there a team that's scrambling desperately enough with training camp injuries to where it would benefit them to be operating in LTIR? I would have thought that it would be more likely, if possible, to get done in the offseason, in the summer, the way, for example, Montreal was able to move the Shea Weber contract and they took back the uh, Evgeny Dadnov contract. So the fact that it hasn't been done by October makes me wonder. I think it's less likely than I originally thought going into the offseason in terms of the Canucks being able to move this contract. But uh, we'll see. I, I'm not. I'm not aware of all 32 teams' exact uh, cap cap and in, in injury situations and what their potential LTIR outlook is. What do you think it would cost them to move that deal? Because it also seems like. You know, there is some pressure from above, from ownership, to just not have to have the cash layout. It's interesting because I thought it would have, going into the offseason, I thought the Canucks would have, this contract would have had slightly positive trade value. And the fact that, I mean, that's usually the way it's um, it's been in years past. Now that we're this deep into, into the offseason and, and close to the start of the season, you might have to add a slight sweetener. I mean, I don't think it would be significant. But again, I think it's it's not necessarily about what are you adding. I think you're more concerned about is there a team desperate enough like um, like the Leafs, for example, with some of their rash rashes of short-term injuries. Now, again, I don't know their their cap situation front and back. I mean, you you uh, you damn near need to be an accountant uh, to understand their their. Uh, their gymnastics and and all the transactions that they do. Um, Durant would know them. You need to be a lawyer, Brandon Pridham over there in, in, in the Leafs. I mean, yeah, I mean, Durant might know. He's well, it's the Leafs. The Come on, guys. he would know. It's the Leafs. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. He actually, that's, that's, that's a good one. He would know. He would know. He would know it's the that. Leafs. Yeah. So, I, I he's mean, got Dubas on speed dial. That's very true. If there's one man that would know, we. we uh, can, can we call a friend here? Can we call a friend? No. Um, I'm doing I'm doing a live room with him in the next couple of weeks, so I'll 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 get him on it. Yeah. So I think it's not not even necessarily about what would you need to to add. Maybe it's a slight sweetener. I just I wonder is there a team desperate enough? And and I don't know that right now. Um, let's talk a bit about the the exercise that the two of you came up with uh, in the athletic uh, a couple of days ago, and that is where the current roster is and. So just to preface this, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys didn't do a 22 or a 23-man roster. It was a 20-man opening night game day lineup, right? Yes. So 16 of the spots have been locked in. Uh, a number of others you guys sent down. I want to focus on the names that are on the bubble. Yeah. Because there were some interesting ones for me. Uh, you've got Luke Shen on the bubble. Um, you know, Certainly, I think he's going to be in the opening night lineup. Danny DeKaiser, 
Again, I can see him being a scratch, but in the opening night lineup, wow, that, that surprised me a little bit. Uh, Tucker Pullman, um, hard to argue. Uh, hard to argue, but, uh, you know, especially given what they're paying him. Jason Dickinson, uh, which surprised me given the fact that there are two players that you guys have potentially out with injury, right? So I kind of thought that opened up a spot for him, but he hasn't, he hasn't been, uh, incredible to this point. Phil DiGiuseppe for the second year in a row. Look, this guy is, looks like he's done enough to make it. Whether or not he makes it remains to be seen. Kyle Burrows. Uh, Christian Wolanin, both on the back end. Nils Zaman is one that surprised me. Um, but uh, certainly Boudreaux talked about him as being a bit of a, a pleasant surprise so far in terms of what he's seen. Linus Carlson, who's been given a lot of opportunities in frontline roles throughout preseason. Those are the names that you guys have got on the bubble. Those are the ones that interest me. Where to begin? Yeah, so I think right off the bat, with DeKaiser, for example, he hasn't shown enough to this point, even in, in uh, the, the game last night. I'd, I'd be shocked if he ends up uh, ends up making, um, being one of the, the club's top six uh, defenders when they open the season against uh, Edmonton. Beyond that, out of the bubble guys, I think Luke Shen obviously is the is a strong front runner. He's, we, we know he's a guarantee to make the roster itself, and I think he's a strong front runner to, to be one of the uh, 6D. The reason we had him on the bubble uh, in terms of the opening night lineup in the first place is because if they, like we're waiting to see what they do with Hughes and, and whether he's on the right side or on the left side, because if they had, if there's a scenario where they continue with Hughes on the right side, well, then you've got Hughes and Myers as locks. Then it's between Shen and Pullman in terms of that last spot. Both are third pair caliber D. And based off their training camp and preseason performances, I think you'd give the edge to Shen right now. But it especially isn't. if he's going to play next to Jack Rathbone, I think they like having yeah. that dynamic there. So, like, I, I certainly see a world where, I mean, and a lot of this will depend on Travis Dermott, but I certainly see a world where uh, Pullman is scratched on opening night. It's possible, but. I also don't know if the club can afford to have Hughes on the right side. I just who's going to play second pair lefty, right? So it could uh, the landscape could could change. But yes, if they stick with him on the right side, uh, unless they're willing to shift Pullman or one of Sh- Pullman or Shen to the offside, one of them would have to uh, would have to be a healthy scratch to open the season. Now, what's interesting is the injuries have kind of killed some of the suspense when it comes to even just even just the roster because. With Mikheyev and Besser out, like there's a lot less, lot less pressure on Jason Dickinson, where he's been. I mean, there were points where he was decent in Whistler, but he, he's, he's kind of looked. We've kind of just seen seen the same old, same old from him. And mm-hmm. Oman's emergence has been a little bit interesting. Like I genuinely wonder. Oman has size. He moves decently well. And he's really smart defensively with his positioning, with the stick work. Boudreaux's name checked him twice. I don't think that he is going to leapfrog Dickinson yet. But realistically, are, would the Canucks even be any worse off if they had Oman in the lineup compared to Dickinson? Not at all. Not at all. Right. So, and there's a lot of players you can, like not worse off with Phil Giuseppe in the lineup. There's nobody you can look at and say, you know. Um, don't give this player an opportunity. The only thing that's that's going to give Dickinson, much like Pullman, as healthy an opportunity as possible is his contract. Yeah. So 
Oman in general, I think it's interesting that he's even worked his way into the conversation, and he, he may not he may not play in the opening night lineup, but I think he's going to get NHL games this uh, this season. He obviously doesn't have a lot of offensive upside, but his game just translates to the pro level. He's really smart, and and he's exactly the sort of guy that you want, say, centering the fourth line when injuries hit and you're you're short a lot of bodies and it's game sixty and and you just need competent NHL minutes. So. He's interesting, and I just don't know how the, the the most interesting one for me is is Carlson. We talked about how long of a look he's gotten. He's still adjusting to the North American game. The skating is obviously a, a significant work in in progress, but there are there are also points where he's looked effective. He's looked like a player who is smart enough, has enough puck skills, and has the size and the ability to play in traffic for him to not kill you in an NHL spot. So I'm going to be interested to see if he can push, especially if Hoaglander fades down the, down the stretch in the preseason. Um, Linus Carlson, uh, again, another guy that's been given a ton of opportunity, uh, a young player, 22 years of age. Um, certainly we see him playing NHL games this season, but on opening night, really? It's possible, depending on this injury situation. I think you have Hoaglander in there over Carlson right now. Yeah, but I also don't think Carlson wouldn't be getting shot chances with Pedersen and Miller and getting uh, getting um, time here and there on on the power play right from the first main group practice if Boudreaux didn't consider him. I think in my in my mind a legit contender to be one of the the tw- top twelve forwards. So maybe he doesn't make the opening night lineup, but if I could see a scenario where, let's say, Hoaglander makes uh, is one of the team's top tall forwards, and let's say he's quiet a couple games, and, and we know Boudreaux, based off the way he deployed Hoaglander at the end of last season, Hoaglander got marginalized. I don't think Boudreaux is the biggest fan of Hoaglander. It wouldn't surprise me if a couple games into the, into the season, Carlson's the sort of 13th guy that you immediately throw and give a chance to. Um, so before we wrap it up, let's uh, talk a bit about where we're at with uh, with a couple of players' injuries. I think in the case of Brock Besser, his timeline's a little more clear, right? I expect him to open up on IR, miss the first four games of the season, probably that first road trip altogether. We did see him take a twirl, um, skating, stick handling, uh, in gear after practice the other day. Uh, wasn't taking any shots, but um, you know because we know what happened and we know there was surgery involved, the, the outcome's a little bit clear. But two players, Ilya Mikheyev and Travis Dermott, are a little more interesting. Um, based on what we heard late last week, the expectation was that early this week, Mikheyev would begin skating. Uh, so we'll know a lot more um, today uh, to see if he if he does wind up getting anything done. Um, we also know that uh, Travis Dermott, right? Like, woozy is the best we've got on him and feeling better, terms like that, which certainly would lead you to believe there was some sort of head injury involved. We don't know that for a fact at all, but you know, Woozy would tend to indicate that. Um, are you getting any kind of a sense of timeline on these guys? I'm not. And for Mikheyev, week to week, that's pretty vague. And I think that is oh, a yeah. reflection of, I think that's a reflection of there being uncertainty about how long this may take. Maybe there's, there's a scenario where he starts skating up and, and maybe he's ready for the opening uh, opening game against Edmonton, but maybe um, maybe it drags on. And, and there was obviously a lot of speculation about 
from insiders about what exactly the state of his injury was and, and the severity of it. And and I don't and I don't think we really have a, a clear read on where he's at. I don't think we have a clear read, obviously, on on Dermot. The Boudreaux just didn't have a timeline. And you hear things like feeling better, but if we suspect that it's a head injury, feeling better. I, I mean, when you're when you're recovering from a potential head injury the path back the recovery isn't always a linear progress you can have there there can easily be setbacks or you, one day you can feel one day you can feel fine and, and close to normal and the other day you may not feel that way so your guess is as good as mine in terms of when we might see either one of these guys playing games again well and i mean they and don't that's have not to, to indicate as- that it's a long-term thing but no, but you've got to be know. careful. Look, we, we just see what the Dolphins, that's a football team, by the way, are going through in the NFL with Tua. Yeah, uh, that's a football player, by the way, plays quarterback. Um, I actually know that. So, one. oh, good, good. So, <laughs> yeah, you, you don't want to you, you got to be careful, right? I mean, it's uh, it, it is uh, front and center. You know, the Canucks with Michael Furland, you know, head injury issue, Tucker Pullman. Uh, they want to be careful with it. And it's too early in the season um, to to mess around with that kind of stuff. And if it gives them a chance to look at more uh, more options, then, then do that. I still think he'll be available by opening night just because they've got some time on their side here. But um, the Mikheyev one is certainly a lot more interesting, especially given what they're paying him and where he's expected to slot in in the lineup, how important he's supposed to be on their penalty kill. But uh, a player that's had a big injury history throughout his career, we'll see if that continues to open his time with the Canucks. Um, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the VanCast. We've got a Canuck game on Wednesday. Are you going to be in Abbotsford? I don't know yet. Well, you know who might, who's going to be in Abbotsford is like all the Edmonton Oilers. The entire team is here in BC today uh, for a team building activity uh, out well out in the Valley. Uh, and uh, so they're all available, right? I mean, so there, I know there were some reports in the broadcast yesterday that uh, both Mc, both uh, McDavid and Drysaddle are going to play on Wednesday. That hasn't been determined by the club yet, but they're all here. So it's not a case of you don't want to take them on the road. They're all they're already out here. So it would be you know easy to make that decision to throw them in because uh, they'll have 30, 30 people on that team building trip. Everybody on the opening night roster. So he'll be here. He'll maybe in the press box watching if he's not actually on the ice. So. Um, uh, it'll be interesting on Wednesday to see what kind of lineup the Canucks ice against them. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, Craig Custance and Sean Gentili, they welcome Keith Kuchuk to the Athletic Hockey Show uh, USA podcast on Tuesday. As for us, thanks for listening to the VanCast. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review, and this offer still remains. Get an annual subscription to The Athletic for just $1 a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. Make sure you subscribe uh, to our show as well. Uh, also do the athletic show on YouTube. And at some point before the start of the regular season, Drancer and I will have another live room edition of the VanCast. And uh, then early next week, Harmon and I will be another, we'll be back with another edition of this show. So enjoy a final week of preseason, everybody. When we call you back, when we talk to you again, we'll be ready to kick off the regular season.